0: Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, Auckland faculty. I'm Dr Louise Kugler. I will be talking to a number of our general practice colleagues about their special interests. Special interests develop for many reasons, as you will hear from our speakers. We'll discuss how they develop their special interests, what additional training they did to become proficient in their special interest and you'll also hear how they include their special interest into their week. For some their special interest may take them out of general practice altogether, for others it complements and is incorporated into their daily practice and then there is a group who spend part of their week in general practice and the rest in a specialty clinic. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and feel inspired. So I'd like to introduce you to Professor Bruce Errol, who is well known to lots of us. Bruce is the Professor of General Practice in Primary Healthcare at the University of Auckland, the Director of the Goodfellow Unit, and also a Practising GP at Greenstone Family Clinic in Manurewa in South Auckland. So welcome, Bruce.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: So Bruce, you've got a special interest. Tell us about this.
1: Well, I do um, mental health consultations in my clinic. I use a model of, of acceptance and commitment therapy designed for primary care called Focused Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, known as FACT. And I, I use that with my patients that I pick up with distress. And then my colleagues refer me patients, so the GPs and nurses in the clinic. And occasionally the receptionists will uh, send me a patient. So, um, so I find that very enjoyable working, working with uh, people who've got distress as the term I use.
0: How did you become passionate about this area, Bruce?
1: Well, I guess um, I was very anxious as a young person. And I guess through my career, I've had the normal ups and downs that any human being has those sort of existential uh, issues of what's the point. Um, and uh, doing this work has helped me understand what makes human beings tick. I'm endlessly fascinated by human suffering. And uh, I am very keen to help people learn to live with ease. So I have, a, I have a real passion to want to do that. And I don't know where that comes from. I just remember when I was at primary school, we had a number of British migrants in our group, in our classes. And they used to get picked on a bit by the, by the rough and tumble Kiwi boys. And I used to come to their defence and i think i've always uh, you know there's obviously maybe it was my upbringing i had a desire to want to help people who are who are suffering um so so that's how I sort of got into that. I got into it from the research point of view, and then in the last four or five years, started doing consultations specifically and inviting my colleagues to send patients to me. Um, so if you don't have easy access to mental health workforce in your clinic, this is a great thing to do. Our nurses do about 20% of the distress consultations. AG, GPs do 80%. And we have a billing system by where we can all bill for that. So, it's. Um, It's a pretty good system.
0: And Bruce, if someone was interested in this, how would they upskill and what training did you do? to feel confident to undertake these consultations?
1: There's no one course you can do for acceptance and commitment therapy, but I did some of the courses with Russ Harris, who runs courses over here. Someone would be welcome to get in touch with me. People often get in touch with me. They could look at my website, www.brucearroll.com. There's a thing there on doing consultations at Greenstone. So I did a lot of Russ's courses. I went to the what's called the ACBS conferences, Uh, That's the Association of Contextual Behavioral Science. It was quite funny because I didn't know what contextual behavioral science meant until I'd gone to a a couple of conferences. But essentially it's knowing – I mean, a diagnosis is a fairly narrow – unhelpful thing really in medicine. You want to know what the context of somebody's life is um, and then make some changes in their life to get them going. So knowing the context is more important than knowing the diagnosis. And for distress in primary care, context is everything. The diagnosis is fairly unhelpful, I'd say, in primary care. And I don't think we should spend a lot of time on it. Quite frankly, we should get on with therapy. We're good at therapy, empathise with people, people need to be seen, heard and understood and then get them doing things, behaviourally activating them, very important.
0: And so now in your practice, Bruce, what percentage of your day or your week would be doing your sideline interest.
1: Um, it would be a third to a half. Depends. Um, the problem if you're doing mental health stuff is patients often don't turn up, so that that can be a bit of a problem. So I actually text them, and I use my own personal phone to text them the night before. Now I know a lot of doctors aren't that keen to do it. It seems like as you get older, you're less worried about being stalked by people. So we we older doctors seem to be happy with that. But then they can text back and say, "Look, I'm sorry, I can't come," and then you can you can clear the slot so it 's a third to a half. I find them fascinating i love to I love to get to grips with the psychosocial um, it 's sort of like a detective like what's what 's the thing that 's going to break this case open what 's the pivot point I can get that will get this person uh, getting back in the river of life and living with ease so that that 's the aim so it 's trying to find some people call it a strike point or a pivot point. And we'll all know what that is. You know, something, I often call it, and I don't mean to sort of, this sounds boastful, something clever happens in the middle of the di- of the consultation. And sometimes I can't remember at the end what it was. I just think, oh, something clever happened then and the patient was a lot better. But you get that massive insight for the patient and then they can get on with their life. Uh, or you reframe. I-, I could give you an example, if you'd like, um, of a lady who was, she'd had breast cancer in her late 30s and she was Feeling like financially, she and her husband weren't as well off as some of their friends. And I said, well, you had to stop work to uh, get your health good so that you could be the best mother on earth for your children. And so that meant you lost a little bit of, of, of earnings. But I think you have to look at what you've got rather than what you haven't got. And that was enough to get her uh, back into the river of life, you know. So instead of feeling like well, we haven't got as big a car or caravan or dog as our neighbors, uh, she was able to realize, well, she's got her kids and she's got her health. The other thing, as I was going to say, too, that we talked about a moment ago was um, I don't think you can just see patients regularly um, eight or nine hours a day, five days a week. I think you have to have some little interest in your practice to break it up, and it's a real privilege when your, pa- when your colleagues send you patients for you to see. You've got something in common with them, uh, you give them a second opinion, and they're usually grateful that, they, that you can see the patient for them. So it's, uh, it's important to have, it adds a bit of variety. I think the gypsy role that you're talking about actually provides a role in the clinic, and uh, it's enormously satisfying, I would say.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for your time today, Bruce appreciate that and I hope you inspire someone to come your way.
1: Thank you. I I hope that happens as well.
0: So I'd like to introduce you to Karen Falloon. Karen is a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and a member of the Australasian Sleep Association. She's also a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland. Hi
2: Karen. Hi Louise. So tell us about your special interest. So my interest is sleep and um, insomnia in particular so I uh, work at a sleep clinic, and I mainly see patients who have had insomnia. And usually, as we all know, their patients who have had it for many, many years, often. So, how did this interest develop
0: for you, Karen?
2: Uh, I guess it was a little mixture of serendipity and design. Um, when I was doing my GP training, I was fortunate enough to um, be a an academic registrar in the Department of General Practice, and so did a the dual fellowship with the academic component and uh, with that I uh, I joined in with Professor Bruce Arrell and Dr Tony Fernando on some sleep research and that really piqued my interest Uh, and so I ended up doing a PhD in insomnia where I looked at a behavioural treatment for insomnia and and ran a trial looking at the effectiveness of that and it all really started from there um, I guess, learning more about insomnia and also seeing the, just the massive need that there is, um, it was, it was a real window and I guess an eye opener. And it also, uh, you know, like anything, when you learn a bit about something, you often become more interested and passionate about it. And certainly, as I say, seeing the need, but also um, learning about how to, that you know, that it was totally possible to manage uh, an issue that previously I guess had been a bit of a heart sink issue for me because we really didn't we hadn't learned much about it and didn't really have any background in how to manage it properly. so it was it was really this this window into a world uh, where I could really make a difference, I suppose, but also i I quite enjoyed having an area that I could um, you learn much. More about um, you know, and and develop kind of that knowledge base um, regarding that. So as part of um, when I was doing my PhD, I worked in a private sleep clinic, and then once I'd finished my PhD, I also worked in a, a different private sleep clinic, and this was as well as well as doing part time general practice, uh, and then um, eventually at, at some point I sort of thought about exactly what I wanted to be doing with all my kind of different hats that I was wearing. Uh, And I really felt that the place for a sleep clinic was within general practice. Uh, You know, that this is where our patients are and, uh, you know, we're quite capable of dealing with it, but it it actually just requires a slightly different way of thinking. Um, And so Really, what I mean by that is a protected time, and so so I set up a sleep clinic in my general practice, and that's where I um, that's where I consult today, seeing patients um, predominantly with uh, with insomnia, but also with other sleep conditions.
0: So, Karen, you've mentioned you worked in a number of sleep clinics, but did you do any formal training?
2: There's no direct pathway for training uh, for sleep, which is a little bit difficult, um, but I. Uh, I guess I've cobbled together some training and the PhD was a large part of that because of course I was doing lots of reading and research and in traveling to conferences Um, but there is a a five-day course um, run through the University of Sydney which is called Fundamentals of Sleep Medicine so I've done that course Um, and I also am a member of the Australasian Sleep Association that you mentioned uh, and go to their conference each year and they often run pre-conference workshops and there's usually at least a day that is on insomnia in those pre-conference workshops and, of course, attending a sleep conference uh, you know, is a really great place for learning. So that that would be the bulk of um, the bulk of the learning, although it's not a formal pathway. The other thing that I'm doing is a practice certificate in sleep psychology, and so that's through the Australian Psychological Association. Um, and a lot of these things have been me kind of reaching out to find things because, as I say, there's there's not this natural pathway. The other thing I um, I found is that when I decided that yes, this is what I want to stick doing, and it's really meaningful for me and, and it's um uh, a really interesting area is that I set up a sleep clinician peer group through the um through the college, and that's been really good because of course once you've got something like that, you attract a like minded community and I think that when you have a special interest, having that like-minded community is really important, both for just your own support and feeling like you're not going it alone, um, but also for, for the kind of ongoing learning and the flow of ideas.
0: Karen, integrating this into your practice, you mentioned that you're working within a general practice, but what are the logistics of this and how do you make your clinic work?
2: I think the main thing when you're doing a sleep clinic in particular is that, uh, you know, it's a time thing. So we do long appointments, or I do long appointments. So usually an hour to an hour and a quarter for an initial assessment. And so that's that's the assessment and, and management, obviously, for that initial session. And so I have a, um, obviously, I've got, got my room. I've got um, patient handout documents that kind of lay out the expectations. And so that's the time required. Uh, and it's the, the cost that's associated and also the expectations for the clinic. This sleep clinic is a um, a place for your sleep issues to be assessed and anything else um, is appropriate to be dealt with by your GP. And so I think just setting those expectations is really important. And so the main logistics of the sleep clinic in general practice is setting those expectations. Over and above that, it's being in my usual you know, room uh, and and booking the patients and things. And so I see patients in-house but also external patients who require a referral from their GP so that, uh, you know, there's that closed loop of the expectation is that they are coming to see me for their sleep issue and information will be transferred back to their GP. And then that that sort of um, allows there to be safety in that loop and that I'm not dealing with everything else that's going on in their life. And the GP, I'm well aware of what the GP has done already in terms of management, which is particularly important in terms of medications. And then they know what I've done. And then there's a finishing point. So it's uh, you know akin to when you see a specialist, you go, you have your appointment and then discharge back to the GP. Um, and so people can come back and see me when they're sort of there their course of treatment is finished, um, but their their holistic care remains with the GP, which I think is really important. And I think that's a bit more seamless when it is a primary care sleep clinic, uh, which is which is really nice. It's not too much of a you have to go elsewhere or a you know a big undertaking to then go up to the next level of care.
0: Great. Thanks, Karen, for your time today. We really appreciate it. It's been quite inspirational. So my next guest is Dr. Stephanie Taylor. Stephanie is an Otago graduate, and she's a specialist GP and partner at St. Helia's Medical. Stephanie has a governance special interest. She is an examiner for the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, a director for ProCare Network, and an elected member of the New Zealand Medical Association General Practitioners Council. She is also a trustee for a mental health organisation called Voices of Hope. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, how are you? Good, good. So, Stephanie, tell us about your special interest and how your special interests evolved.
3: Yeah, well, it was a bit of, uh, I sort of fell into the role, to be honest. It wasn't something I was looking to do, but I was um, doing some examining for the college GPs and got invited to join their educational advisory group. Um, and so I did that for a couple of years, and whilst I was i involved with that, I did some Institute of Director Training and realized that I quite enjoyed it because you could actually make changes and get things done at a higher level than you can often do just one-on-one in the general practice. And I guess that's what kind of spurred me into it. Um, and then when I, once I was elected onto the pro care board, which was three years ago, that's when I guess I became more involved and in obviously spent more, more time, um, doing that part of the role, um, as well as working obviously five tenths in St. Heliers, the practice that I own. So, um, yeah, I guess it was just something that sort of happened. And I've enjoyed it. And I really enjoy getting to meet people and then take that information back to management levels and then looking at changes and new innovations and things that can only help us at the cold face.
0: So Steph, you mentioned some training that you did. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? And is it something that you would recommend that we do mm-hmm. need to fill in in order to be able to do these sorts of roles?
3: Sure yeah well I, I know um, through medical school you don't get much business exposure and then obviously you go um, to become a general practitioner and, and particularly if you become an owner of a practice it's a bit of baptism by fire and you're sort of learning on the on the job um, and so I didn't have a background at all in any financial um, knowledge and I did find that um, doing the Institute of directors they basically have a whole series of pro programs that you can choose to do um, and the first one I did was essential. I think it was called Essential Governance, um, which gave you basically an overall background of um, differences between, you know, senior management teams and being involved in the governance side where you're doing more of the strategy and that sort of thing. Um, And then that was just a one-day course Um, and then I did a further one day in the financial, um, side of it. So again, it was run by the Institute of Directors, which, which are a great organization because they basically have everyone from all fields, right? obviously not just GP, um, but from, you know, all, all areas. Um, and so I did that. And then from there, I did a three day course with the Institute of Directors, which was actually run by BDO, one of the, um financial um, auditors and within that, that was really good because that was three days and it was great because they were three um, separate days. So one day a month, which meant I wasn't out of the practice for, you know, for a long time all at once Um, and met some amazing people through that. And so that's been quite good to grow my networks and to have other people um, that I can contact, um, you know, when I've got questions and and, and any issues there. Um, And so, yeah, the institutional directors courses are a good starting point. And I'd highly recommend them if you're interested in that sort of thing. So,
0: Steph, you've mentioned that you're still in general practice five days a week. How does Mm -hmm. your
3: governance role sort of
0: slot into that? Yeah. Uh,
3: Well, obviously, the more um, roles I take on, the harder that juggling becomes. Um, But basically, I I generally work five mornings a week in the practice. And that worked well when my kids were younger and, you know, with school hours. And so I've maintained those five sessions a week. And then I try and slot my other uh, roles around that. Some days I'll obviously like for care meetings they are usually a full day affair, so I'll have to take a day off there, and then I usually try and make those hours up at work. but um, but I guess the other members of my practice are quite supportive of that, and I, if I know well in advance which we tend to do, then I can sort of locum for that time. Um so yeah, it seems to work. Um just in the weekend, I was down at the college doing the examiner training, and um, that meant I didn't get a weekend. <laughs> But, you know, <laughs> that's just what we do as GPs, right, with our CME and everything else. So, yeah, it, it does seem to work. I, I definitely think um, five-tenths is the most I'd be able to manage with all these other roles.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Steph. And if someone was wanting to look at these governance type roles, where would they go to talk to someone or to get involved? What What advice would you have?
3: Yeah. Look, I think um, there's plenty of us out there doing this sort of this sort of activity. I mean, most PHOs gem- generally have a few GPs on the board. Um, obviously, the NZMA, as you mentioned, and then the college obviously has a um, board and many subcommittees under that. So that'd be good starting points. Is just to look online and see who's involved, and then just reach out and contact one of us. Under I know I'd be more than happy to help people and I've spoken to a few people in the past about how to sort of get themselves ready and, and get that exposure and I think um, particularly nowadays they have a few apprenticeship roles which would be quite useful so um, they're, they're often voluntary or you know non-funded but at least it gives you that exposure so you can determine whether that's something you're interested in or not uh, without obviously a huge commitment for time and and cost
0: excellent thanks Steph for your time today it's been excellent and inspiring <laughs> thank you so my next guest is Nari Kearse. She is a GP in Auckland and professor of general practice in primary health and also holds the Joyce Cook Chair in Ageing Well at the University of Auckland. After training in primary care in the United States, she completed a geriatric medicine fellowship at University of Pennsylvania and GP training in Auckland, New Zealand. She's also got a PhD from the University of Melbourne and she has built a programme of research throughout New Zealand over the last two decades. Thanks Nari, for joining me.
4: Oh, thanks Louise, always good to talk.
0: So we're talking about special interests and as I've mentioned, you have a special interest in both academia and older persons health. Tell us how your special interest evolved.
4: Um, well, I've always been in love with older people ever since my grandmother got to be 95 and I was very intrigued as to how she got there. Um, She had a big garden in Motueka, and we used to have a family holiday where there were all the kids in the car, you get to grandma's garden and then you just pile out of the car because it was like a 12 hour drive from Waikaka in Southland and um, pick all the raspberries and the strawberries and the plums, you know, it was uh, that wonderful Golden Bay um, area. And, she, and that went on for years and years. And then we returned there when we were at university and went hiking and we'd come home from the back to grandma's place from the hike and she would have washed all our clothes and mended them all and sewed the buttons on and she was just a trooper. So when I... Went, finished medical school, um, I kind of married the wrong man. So he was going to University of Pennsylvania for a PhD in something completely different, in archaeology. So I went along and got a job. And then in as a resident in a training program, one of the North American big training programs. And then when I'd finished my residency, he hadn't finished his PhD. So then I opted for geriatrics because it was the easiest well, it wasn't the easiest fellowship, but I thought it was the best one. And then I really that was where my interest in older people came from. And during that fellowship, I had research training as well. And so I was really quite interested in research as well. So the natural way to progress both of those things is was to take an academic stream where you do research and you teach students and you also continue in clinical practice. So for me, it was a really good option. Came back to New Zealand, ended up going to Australia, did a PhD there, um, and it just kind of carried on. Came back to New Zealand into an academic job. So the most clinical practice was half-time for several years, seven or eight years, in clinical practice but I've always had some academic and now I'm mostly academic and then one day a week general practice but I have to say that it feels to me like one day a week's not enough it should be half and half would be the the ideal balance potentially but then that's hard because it's very hard to achieve anything academically um, you're always pulled in two directions so yeah I, I would say it's been a hard life other people say it's been an easy life Um, But I certainly, it's very rewarding doing research and um, engaging with people and finding out what they want to know and trying to make, you know, the lives of older people better from a different level than the one-on-one thing we do in clinical practice. Um, And that's sort of, I I guess it's a little bit like public health. You do things to the population instead of to individuals. So with research, you're trying to solve you yeah, find questions that can be answered and then answer them for the good of the population rather than the one-on-one clinical but my one-on-one clinical I just I'm still in love with old people I just really like them much rather talk to them than certainly adolescents they're my they're my they're my Achilles heel adolescents great
0: thank you Nairi so your most of your training was done overseas if someone was interested in looking at older persons health in New Zealand are there any programs that we could
4: explore or look into Um, So in New Zealand, certainly there's quite a few people who do gypsy roles. So that's extended practice in older people's health. And so they might work alongside the older people's mental health team or the geriatricians. Uh, in, a, in assist, a sort of assistant geriatrician type roles or take roles within the PHO to specifically focus on older people. Uh, there's opportunities to do that work. Training for that work is a little bit more tricky. So certainly doing some years of medicine uh, specialty and working mostly in the geriatric wards would be great. But primary care of older people, I think, is different because you've got the increased range of keeping people at home mostly and in aged residential care. And both of those, I do think you need sort of an extended range of skills for. We used to have a, a university qualification, a post PG Dip in geriatrics, and there are still some good gerontology papers around. So we're thinking now about revamping the diploma in geriatric medicine for, for primary care people. Um, and so... I think if you're interested in it, then you kind of start doing it and you seek out those moss or gypsy roles and get a, get some skills alongside the the rest of the people you work with. In the research role,
0: Nairi, it's often daunting when you're full on in general practice. You have questions about research, but you're just not sure where to start or who to approach. What would your advice be there? Obviously, you've had a lot of experience in this side of your career.
4: Um, Yes, I do think it's time to revamp the way primary care is funded so that there is time to have higher level thoughts about, not higher level thoughts, but to have time to do research and think about research from a higher level during your practice time. So this hospital specialists have, you know, some funded administrative time where where they tend to do research thinking then. Ways to get time to do research. You can apply for grants um, to fund your time to do research. The College of GPs has fellowships which are available um, for little bits of times, little bits of time to do that. You, partnering with someone like myself is a really good idea. So go to your local Department of General Practice or, or Department of Primary Health Care or Department of Rural Health and General Practice. Um, and there is a burgeoning group of young rural hospital doctors who are uh, seem to be quite interested in research and I've also met several young new new graduates who are during their fellowship training become very interested in research so the more people are interested will drive this change to make opportunities for people to do research and certainly pushing your pho to do useful pieces of research and facilitate the coalface clinical GPs to participate in that research is really important. And I've got one more point to add. Um, And that is that don't be afraid of postgraduate study. There's some very good courses at all of the university, the two medical schools through in New Zealand at postgraduate level to get a taste of, you know, uh, higher degree learning and don't be afraid to actually do a master's degree. Um, I think that's, there's some really good thinking that goes on and it, and it just gives you a different view of practice and how it works. Excellent. Thank you,
0: Nori. Wonderful piece of advice and inspirational um, tips for our listeners. My next guest is Dr. Orna McGinn. She's a GP who trained in the UK and is working here in Auckland. She works part-time as a GP. She has a role in the Auckland DHB as the Clinical Director of Primary Care Women's Health and she's also involved in teaching at the University of Auckland. Welcome, Orna.
5: So Orna, tell us about your special interest. Kia ora, Louise. Thanks very much for inviting me to, to come and chat about my favourite subject, which is <laughs> primary care women's health. Um, so as, as you said, I'm, I'm a, a UK-trained GP, and I've been here about 10 years, and I've I've always had an interest in, in women's health and contraception. When I was in the UK, I worked in family planning alongside my GP work, and it was quite it was quite usual to be what we called a portfolio GP even ten years ago. So having uh, you know an interest alongside your GP work, um, and when when I got here, I um, I sort of looked for the same opportunities and there weren't quite so many of them, particularly in, in women's health, actually. Um, for instance, um, in the UK, I was uh, able to train other people in in, in LARC's and contraception and because the, there hasn't been a training scheme here. I wasn't able to do that and it was very difficult to work as a GP in family planning. So, so I suppose um, I just gradually got myself um, involved in... Uh, in teaching at the university, teaching on the women's health diploma, and via that, I then uh, became involved in sort of other DHB, uh, DHB work in in women's health, and that's led to my current role at Auckland at Auckland DHB. But I would say my primary role is still as a as a GP, obviously, and about forty percent of the work I do within general practice is, is women's health and contraception. Yeah, so I've managed to keep that interest up.
0: So Orna, with your special interest, did you do any additional training?
5: Yeah, uh, again, so there's a very um, standard pathway uh, in the UK and it would be very very uh, normal for pretty much all GPs who had any interest in, in women's health to be doing the Diploma of OBS and Gynae. So, so I have that. And then there's also a separate... Um, diploma of the faculty of family planning or that it's called the diploma of the faculty of reproductive and sexual health now Uh, so I had that as well because you have to have that to go on and do practical training in LARPs implants and IEDs and you come out of that with a letter of competence they call it and you have to have that recertified every few years by keeping a logbook and doing a certain number so that gives um, you confidence and also gives um, the practices that you work in confidence that you're competent and also gives you patient's confidence that you're competent and it's it's been interesting there's been a lot of resistance actually to um to having something similar like that uh here in New Zealand it's it's seen as a barrier but whereas to me the barrier is that there isn't any training rather than <laughs> rather than the barrier being that there might be at some stage a a prescribed standard to be reached. So that's that's the sort of philosophical discussion that um, you know I and a number of other interested parties are having with um, the, uh, the GP college in Ranscog at the moment. So yes, I've got those. I've got those additional qualifications. And in the in in the UK, you wouldn't really be uh, able to be taken on as a Lark inserter uh, without those. So I'm you know I'm involved also in advocating for for sort of similar training here and I'm, I'm you know fingers crossed that is going to be rolled out within the next few months by family planning who've got a contract with the ministry of how to deliver training which should be starting starting quite soon so i'm really hopeful that the landscape is going to change actually and more women are going to be able to access the the effective contraception that they need so Anna, how do you incorporate your special interest into
0: your week what does your week look like
5: uh, so Louise, um, it probably looks similar to a lot of other GPs um, in that uh, I'm in a, a really lovely, supportive practice where we've all been encouraged to have um, our own interests. You know, I've got I, I work alongside GPs who've got an interest in skin cancer medicine, um, uh, travel uh, medicine, mental health. So um, we we sort of um, refer patients to each other, which is a really nice arrangement. It's quite a large practice. There's there's twelve of us, and we've got six practice nurses who've all got an additional qualification in mental health as well I should say so we you know we we really strive to 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 do the best for our patients so I I work um, two days in general practice and I usually have at least three IUD insertions in each of my uh, clinics so they do get quite full up with that but I really enjoy that and I would say another large portion of my GP work is is mental health so that that uh, again I think is pretty standard for for all for all GPs so cramming everything into those two days is sometimes tricky because obviously you've got your paperwork to, to do and so often they, are, you know, you, you stay a bit late to get that done. Because then the other days, uh, I'm up at um, Auckland District Health Board with my other hat on. <laughs> Shall I tell you a bit about that as well? Yeah. So this, um, so the role I've got at Auckland DHB has a, a sort of fancy name, which um, belies the the fact that obviously you know I can't do half the things I'd like to be able to do. But the the title is um, clinical director of primary care women's health, and what that mean is, um, means is means is I I sit up at the the same. Uh, level of management as the clinical director of the women's health of the department and the clinical director of, of midwifery, and my my role really is to try and get more integration between primary and secondary care, uh, and also uh, to try and devolve work that can be done in primary care to primary care. And this women's health is is so amenable to this. I mean, GPs are perfectly positioned to look after their women patients. You know, all the way from HPV vaccination through to you know menopause and beyond. And, it, and if we've got the skills to do that in primary care, then you, you get less of that fragmentation, which is a feature of the landscape in, in New Zealand. Um, so I've been really uh, trying to work towards, you know, investigation and management of heavy menstrual bleeding in primary care with Mirena insertion, trying really hard to, to, to get upskilling and funding for for larks in primary care, changing of ring pessaries. We've got women at ADHB have been coming up every six months for ring pessary changes for 15, 20 years. And this is such a such a waste of their time uh you know uh, it's such a waste of these poor women's time uh and uh, you know it's such a straightforward thing to do but there's no training so that's so that's really what that role is about and more recently um i've also spent um i've been given a session a week to start triaging the gynae referrals as well and the 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 reason the clinical director and i sort of talked about this being a useful thing to do is that we can get a handle on what's coming in, what the skill level in primary care is, and uh, we can direct women um, to the right place, which is more convenient for them. And if that is back to primary care with good advice, then, you know, we see that as a win. If we're, you know, it's not about pulling up the drawbridge and rejecting referrals, it's more about upskilling primary care, giving good advice, having the right pathways. We're very lucky in Auckland, we've got great regional health pathways um so that is being piloted at, at the moment and so far i've had um you know i've had quite i've had i've had good feedback from gps actually uh, i was a bit concerned that it might be seen as a um you know as a bit of a a hand up so they're saying don't come in a bit of a wall but no i think people are appreciating appreciating that so so that really is what my my week looks like louise with a bit of teaching thrown in now and again so A GP who wants to
0: pursue women's health, where would you direct them?
5: Uh, well, I I would say it is uh, really important to signal early that this is what you're interested in. So make contact with with other GPs who are already doing it, because I think it's I think that collegiality and that mentoring is really important. And I, I've got a I've got an email list of GPs and practice nurses who are really interested in women's health. And I sort of now and again send out sporadic information if there's funding coming up for something or teaching and education. So I would say, um, you know, stick your head up like a little meerkat, find out what's going on. Uh, and band together with some people who are interested number two i think it's really important to get some additional qualifications so if you can get the women do the women's health certificate or the diploma of obs and gynaecology, that will stand you in really good stead uh, so that's important if you can also um talk to a friendly gynecologist and get some experience in in clinics uh just seeing ring pessaries inserted and removed watching them do propels um uh, the, you know, the things that sometimes it's hard to get experience in. Most gynees I know are so happy to teach interested GPs and I'm always really happy to put people in touch with with um, gynecologists, certainly in the Auckland region. And I know a lot of the clinical directors of OBS and Gyne at the other DHBs and I can always direct um people uh to 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 other people who you know who live in other areas of the country so i would say make make good contacts get some additional qualifications when if you're interested in doing contraception once this training scheme is rolled out express your interest early Uh, and the other thing i'll just plug is um there is a new college uh, new zealand college of sexual reproductive health which has literally just been established which is looking to fill the gap you know, the sort of w- w- between Ranscog and the GP College, where a lot of this women's health has fallen between two stools. Um, I, I'm a board member and I'm very much interested in, in um, you know, putting this uh, information, education and training out to primary care. So I would say keep a, keep an eye on that college. It's really new and the website's, you know, a work in progress. But that that I, I feel that this is going to be, um, you know, a, a place where a lot of this stuff will sit in the in the coming years.
0: Fantastic, thank you Anna, for your time today, really appreciate it and you've been quite inspirational. Thanks so much Louise for asking me to talk. So my next guest is Dr Yvonne Laforte, she is a family physician and an international board certified lactation consultant based in Auckland. She's a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, a Canadian family physician and the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Welcome Yvonne, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Louise. Thank you for asking me. So, your special interest, tell us about that.
6: Yes, well, as you said, I'm a Canadian-trained family doctor, and uh, I've done a bit of work in Canada over the years, but most of my professional life was actually in New Zealand. But while I was working in Canada, at the time of my second son's birth, Um, When I returned to work after a relatively short maternity leave, I began to work in a clinic that actually had a breastfeeding clinic associated with the family practice. So somehow by osmosis, and I guess because it was quite relevant to my uh, stage of family life, I became interested in what was happening in the breastfeeding clinic and the doctor who ran the clinic, Dr. Evelyn Jan, was actually the first family doctor in Canada to do a breastfeeding clinic. So she was very happy to have me become involved so she could take holidays. So I I kind of was led into it and realized After being in practice for over 15 years, I knew very little about this. And after having even having had my second son, I really was no better um, academically trained in the whole area. So it it furthered my interest in the whole field um, and um, opened up a brand new aspect of of, uh, family practice for me. So she taught me skills and really uh, flamed my interest in the field.
0: So, apart from osmosis, as you mentioned, what did you do further training Yvonne
6: so once I became interested in the area, actually we relocated to back to New Zealand about 18 months later. And when I arrived back here, I went back into my practice that I'd been in previously, and um, I wanted to continue my skills and my knowledge that I'd acquired. So I took it upon myself to find out how can doctors become educated about breastfeeding and breastfeeding medicine. So I embarked on um, an online, it was very early on in the online er, uh, learning. It was in the early 2000s. I did an online 10-module course that was based in Brisbane. And from there, I was made aware of other doctors who were actually in New Zealand that were kind of interested in this area. And they told me about an organization called the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, which I hadn't heard of. And so I joined them back in the early 2000s as well. And then through avenues with The uh, collegial support of the other members of that organization, I attended a very large number of conferences and um, met other people. And when online learning became more available, I certainly took advantage of being able to do online courses and conferences. Very early on in the piece, I discovered that there was this qualification called an international board certified lactation consultant. So I did work towards that. And having been in Practice for 15 years, I was able to qualify to write that exam. And I've continued that um, qualification as recently as uh, September. I wrote my exam again. So it's the third time I wrote the exam. And it is really a very um, entry level exam, but it is something that forces you to go back over the basic information and uh, commit it all back into the memory bank again. So, uh, yeah. But meeting other people that were in the field was very influential and particularly Australia, there was a large number of people who have been involved in breastfeeding medicine in Australia for quite a while and so they were very collegial with me and very supportive.
0: And Yvonne, how do you integrate breastfeeding medicine in or your lactation consultant role into your day-to-day practice?
6: right well before I really started in this and when I first trained in Canada. Obstetrics was a big part of our training. We did four months of obstetrics and three months of pediatrics. So it was very much in my realm to begin with. But when I recognized that my knowledge needed to be built upon, um, it opened up avenues suddenly um, that you didn't actually really notice so when I was doing and I continued to do prenatal care up to 37 weeks for quite a while in my early part of my career. So I I would see those babies and mothers back again after they were delivered. And there was lots of opportunity for me to look at how the breastfeeding was going and to be able to offer mothers help. And then I thought, well, if I'm doing this with my own patients, I should expand this out a bit and so through networks like the New Zealand Lactation Consultants Association and Midwifery and some of the DHBs I became an instructor and a teacher for them to achieve their breastfeeding friendly hospital uh, status so people began to know about me and so I thought well I can either see the odd person and fit them in with all the other aspects of general practice which i did for a while and then i realized this is bigger and requires a different style of practice so i just started to devote certain days to breastfeeding medicine and kept the general practice other things separate so it was it's it's quite a transition and i think one of the biggest challenges has been with the structure you have in general practice with your receptionist and nursing staff it um It becomes very difficult to use what I found over time to use the sort of normal booking system because the receptionist may or may not be um, tuned into the very emergent needs of a breastfeeding mother and um, there was a lot of uh, difficulty with triage and making appointments so for the last probably 10 years I've done my own booking and my own uh, triaging to make sure people who needed to be seen quickly, were seen as quickly as I could see them. But generally I've integrated it as, yeah, I I haven't put it, I've I've separated out uh, in the sense of two full days that I spend in breastfeeding medicine. And the other thing I ended up doing was integrating another lactation consultant who works with me and that's been a really great help. So I can do the medical side of things and she can do more of the hands-on and then I can see another person with medical concerns. So the type of people that I get referred to is interesting because over the years I did mention like lactation consultants might send me their difficult cases that they couldn't resolve or midwives when they realize that this is beyond their realm. But also um, I've expanded it into more where I'd like to see uh, prenatal patients as well. So I would see a mom with a pre-existing medical condition who wants to breastfeed and help that become possible. Or a woman who's had a very poor history with a first or second baby and wants to avoid similar difficulties. Or interestingly, what's becoming more and more common are people who are inducing lactation. So these are women who, for whatever reason, either they're in a same gender relationship and they want to co-feed with the baby. Or they're inducing lactation from a surrogacy um, experience or things like, a friend that cannot breastfeed, I'd like to make my I'd like to make uh, breast milk for her to feed. so it's it's very interesting working with those women as well. Uh, so the obstetricians have been pretty good to identify those people early on and refer them to me if they feel they need help. But most of what I do is what all GPS would be faced with is a woman who comes in and, and has difficulties like painful breastfeeding baby's not gaining enough weight, whatever, somebody has told me that this is an issue, can you deal with it? And I do should mention, I do for the last 23 years since I left Dr. Jan's clinic, I do uh, assessment and treatment of tongue ties as well.
0: So Yvonne, it sounds fascinating. If we had uh, one of our colleagues who was interested in breastfeeding medicine and becoming a lactation consultant, what advice would you give to them and where would they start looking to go down this path?
5: Well,
6: interestingly, we do have a breastfeeding medicine peer review group. So there are 12 uh, other GPs in the country um, spread out around the country. Nobody in Auckland. Well, one person who will eventually get into the field in Auckland, but these other young doctors have uh, come together. And, and uh, so we have a peer review. We have educational sessions and we formed a network and with Facebook, we've actually formed a group for people who are interested in breastfeeding medicine. So people can join that. Um, and uh, yeah, and so we can all offer the way our group that we took. So for the younger doctors that have joined in the last few years, a lot of them have done that IBCLC exam. And it seems to be that's a good entry point. But certainly there's a lot of available online learning. And The other lovely thing is that we've established a regional uh, branch of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And this coming February, we're having our conference, our second conference, and we're having it online completely. So that's available to people, and that's people from Australia and New Zealand who work in somehow in the field of breastfeeding, presenting on things like allergies or um, other uh the things that cross into general practice and are of relevance to um, breastfeeding mothers, helping them produce more milk medications and breastfeeding, those sort of things. Yeah, and I'm quite happy if anybody wants to ever come or contact me, because I do see medical students, and I've had a couple of registrars come through, midwifery students, just to spend a day and just to get a feel for what I actually do. So I'm quite happy to be contacted both that as well. But I think, from my point of view, what's really helped me is word of mouth. Because if mothers are helped and they previously had nowhere to go when they've exhausted all the available services, um, they're very good to sort of chat about. And um, I, as I say, I, I think that uh, I haven't established a web uh, a website or anything like that. But I do have a Facebook page that people can contact me under the name of the clinic, was Melford Breastfeeding Clinic.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for your time today. It's been really inspirational. Really appreciate it. Thank you,
6: Louise.
0: I'd like to thank our gypsies for joining us on this podcast series. It's been a pleasure talking to you all and so inspirational. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast,
5: please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.